Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I, along with my co-host Damien Heath Hello. and Cameron Crothers, Hello. are very happy to be back for our first episode of season two. This month we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of one of the most unusual horror films ever made. I'm talking, of course, about Dario Argento's lurid supernatural shocker, Suspiria. Madame Blank. Yes. Susie Bannion. Our new student. Welcome to our academy. The technique of classical ballet assumed a different, more stylized impostation. Welcome to our academy. By 1975, Dario Argento was Italy's most famous film director. His last film, a grisly thriller about a musician hunting down a serial killer in Deep Red, was a critical and commercial hit, with many contemporary critics citing it as the best giallo film ever made. And his affair with lead actress Dario Nicolodi had turned him into a tabloid sensation. Together they sat down to pen his next project, a horror film that would apply the giallo format to a dark fairy tale about a young New York dancer who travels to Munich to train at an elite dance academy, which turns out to be a front for a coven of diabolical witches. Inspired by the films of Mario Bava, Sergio Leone, the writing of Edgar Allan Poe, and particularly essayist Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria di Profundis, Argento would combine avant-garde photography with the ear-shredding sounds of Goblin, with whom he had collaborated on Deep Red, to create an all-out assault on the audience's senses. He cast Jessica Harper as the New York dancer, a rising actress who'd recently made a splash in the Brian De Palma film The Phantom of the Paradise. Argento originally hired favourite cinematographer Luigi Cavalier, showing him Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to convey the visual intensity he wanted for the film. But Cavalier didn't seem to grasp Argento's vision. Frustrated, Argento offered the project to Voli instead, who, after speaking with Argento, independently made some tests to show the perfectionist director. After seeing his work, Argento hired him for the project. The film shot for 14 weeks on location in Munich and West Bavaria in 1976. To keep the actors on their toes during production, Argento would blast the unfinished Goblin soundtrack through sound speakers. Sound was only partially recorded, with the dialogue being 80 yard in post, as was typical of Italian productions at that time. The international cast all spoke different languages, and often actors would respond to each other's dialogue without actually having understood what the other had said. Argento carefully prepped the film to ensure that he never framed two shots in exactly the same way, so as to sustain a sense of visual spontaneity. Released in February 1977, the film was a hit, particularly in Argento's homeland, where it was the seventh highest grossing film of that year. Critics admired its disturbing imagery, innovative use of colour and sound, and startling production design. It caused a stir amongst conservatives who objected to the way it glamorised the violent deaths of its female cast members. 
It was even included in the UK Department of Public Prosecution's controversial Section 3 list of 80 films it attempted to convict under the Obscene Publication Act. Since then, its reputation as a seminal horror film has grown. It's ranked 18th on Entertainment Weekly's Scariest Films of All Time and 3rd on Total Film's list of the greatest 50 horror movies ever made. Argento made two sequels that addressed the other two mothers in De Quincey's essay, Inferno and Mother of Tears. Despite vocal objections from Argento, rumours of a remake were confirmed in November 2015, with Luca Guadagnino to direct a cast that includes Tilda Swinton and Chloe Grace Moretz. Principal photography wrapped in March, and the film is expected to be released later this year. But for now, join us as we piece together its strangely beautiful, or beautifully strange, predecessor, Suspiria. What did you guys think of Suspiria? Suspiria is uh, one of those films that had a reputation when I was growing up. So when I was first getting into movies, I knew about or I learned about Suspiria. And so it was one of those films that I really wanted to watch. And luckily, I think it was uh, Anchor Bay Entertainment made a whole bunch of uh, special editions of pretty obscure horror movies available and somebody imported them into Australia and Suspiria was one of them. So this super special edition with two DVDs and the Goblin soundtrack. Soon after I heard about it, I was able to see it and it was obviously unlike anything I'd ever seen before. So for me, it was quite influential on the horror that I would get into. Cameron, you've always loved it, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, Suspiria's probably would pretty high up in my top 10 favorite films of all time i think it's so interesting the fact that the brutality seems to although it's so vivid in this film and there's so much violence the beauty of the actual film like just aesthetically always trumps that to me and it's so funny when i hear things like it's been banned and you know i've tried to prosecute the you know all that kind of stuff but and it's funny because that seems to be part and parcel you know like to the wayside to me so um yeah I, i love this film and i'm so happy we're doing it i think that's part of the reason why people wanted it banned is because the glamour of the film and then you've got the violence. So yeah. people didn't like that it was glamorizing the brutality. I think if it had been more like raw, vicious violence, the kind of violence you see in Hills Have Eyes, then people wouldn't have been as um, upset by it. Yeah. There's a film academic on the Blu-ray. Her name's Patricia McCormack, and she discusses the Italian social unrest that preceded the rise of the Italian Jali film movement. And that during this period, the Italian people had an intimate relationship with the ambivalence of violence. That's what she calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, And a film like Suspiria, which is aggressively violent and sick, acts as a kind of canvas for the audience to purge its darkest impulses and anxieties in a lawful, even a healthy way. The film came out in the middle of a very bleak period in Italy's socio-political climate. It's known as the Years of Lead, and that denotes a time in Italy's history where a faction of left-wing extremists committed acts of terrorism against the government and the elite in response to the political corruption and social inequalities that pervaded the nation at that time. The first incident occurred in 1961, where a policeman was killed during a leftist demonstration, and it ended in 1988 with the assassination of a senator at the hands of the Red Brigades, and they were a left-wing terrorist group responsible for various kidnappings, robberies, and murders. So you can see Suspiria kind of came out right in the, like, smack in the middle of that um, 20-year period. More than 2,000 murders have been attributed to politically motivated violence throughout this period in Italy. And Argento himself, uh, he was a socialist and he got swept up in the political turmoil at that time. And he actually said that if his life hadn't taken this turn into filmmaking, he most likely would have ended up dead. He would have become sort of really politically interested and been killed as a result. 
So it's really interesting in a way. Suspiria and making films kind of saved him. But the Jalo um, genre, it denotes a series of crime mystery pulp novels that were published from 1929 onward. And these books were released with yellow covers, which is where the term Jalo derives. It means yellow in Italian. In terms of film, the genre, at least for the Italian people, refers to any kind of thriller horror. So things like Vertigo, Peeping Tom. But for people outside of Italy, it refers to a particular set of Italian produced thrillers that shared some distinctive characteristics, including extravagant photography, jarring musical score, gruesome scenes of violence, uh, usually perpetrated among, against uh, beautiful women. And maggots. Many, many maggots. Not only was there the terrorism, which was in the northern areas of Italy primarily, but there was a lot of organised crime in the southern areas of Italy through this time as well. And there's uh, a book called The Monster Show by David Scarl, and he says that in 1976 in Italy, more than 80% of their citizens were either highly or completely dissatisfied with their democracy. For Europe as a whole, it was 46%, you know, in a country that's doing quite successfully, Germany at the time was 20%. So there was a lot of dissatisfaction in Italy. In in the 1970s, there's a lot of liberation going on around the world, so there's easier access to education and higher living standards and more varied leisure activities so travels a lot easier so this made the distinction worse for citizens of Italy who are already quite dissatisfied with the government the crime rate and all of that kind of stuff he also says that horror films tend to reflect a lot of cultural shifts and anxieties and uh, I guess obviously there's a lot of probably the most obvious example not in horror but in sci-fi was nuclear weapons and that kind of anxiety in the 50s but that he mentioned specifically with horror deformed monstrous babies in 60s and 70s 70s horror movies and links that to a fear about giving birth to children with birth defects because there was a scare of thalidomide and that there's the popularity of vampire movies in the 80s which was linked to the surge of uh, cases of the AIDS virus and that Dawn of the Dead particularly was popular in Italy because it played into the fears of the population about the collapse of their own society. I think Italy's in a better place these days but when you watch Suspiria you definitely feel an aggression in it you do sense that it's coming from a very dark place. The experience of the audio in this film is almost greater than the experience of the visual, and I think this is probably the only film for Argento where I think the audio kind of trumps the visuals, even though I think the visuals are the best that he has done, if that makes any sense. But, like, I I can't think of a film that gives less of a fuck for conventions than this film. Like, sound builds up to at points where you aren't expecting it in terms of the score, and then it would just cut. At an edit point, that seems pointless and doesn't make any sense, but it gives this overwhelming feeling as a viewer that you are completely disoriented like you you don't know where it can go in which area and it just feels nauseating at times it, it's, it feels like one long scene this film to me like one long horror horror scare there's not many moments of downtime and even in the moments of downtime you just know something else is, is sort of coming whether it be visually or audio The uh, I agree with you there it's like uh, there's a lot of uh, booming sound and just uh, like layers of sound that just suddenly stop yes. and so the silence is as important as the music and the 
I guess, yeah. the, the sound that's in the atmosphere as well. The example I'm thinking of is when she's walking through the airport yes. and every time it cuts to the what she's looking at, you get the big gobbler score and then it cuts back to her, it's quiet. And I read, a, I read an article on uh, Kino Eye. I don't know if you read that article. Um, and, and they're talking, I think it was Kino Eye, um, and they were talking about how the airport in that scene is like a safety net for her and then as soon as it goes outside, it, 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 she's into this... Even. complete and utter fairy tale yeah. having said that the visuals in the airport are so stylized mm. I'm, I'm almost positive that airport is not pink <laughs> but, <laughs> but like you get that pink ambient because it's like a, almost alluding to what's sort of coming there's also in the airport there's these continuous close-ups of the mechanisms of the sliding door opening and closing yes and when it closes it looks like a knife plunging into something there's yeah. a violence in that shot yeah and like yeah like john carpenter talks about that in that eye for horror documentary that's on all of those argento dvds that you see and he goes i have no idea why he cuts to that other than that it makes me feel very very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean you can just imagine being caught in that as the door closes yes. yeah and so it does it throws you off it makes you realize that if you go go through that door there's a danger yes Alexandra Heller Nicholas is a broadcaster, film critic, author, and adjunct research fellow at the Institute of Social Research at Swinburne University of Technology. Her third book, A Comprehensive and Entertaining Study of Suspiria, published as part of the Devil's Advocate series, considers the way that Argento entwines light, sound, and cinema history to create one of the most breathtaking instances of the modern horror film. Can I ask what the uh, what was the research process like for the book? Because you draw from so many different pieces of academia and interviews and it just felt like it was so comprehensive. I had the proposal accepted by the wonderful publisher or two books um, in the UK who have published my Suspiria book as part of their Devil's Advocate series, which is just a great series across the board. Um, it's a real privilege to be involved in that series and with this publisher. But it was only after the proposal was accepted that it occurred to me that not being able to read Italian was something that I really should have thought about a little bit before. <laughs> Obviously in the Italian press, I think it was Alan Jones, somebody like that, had said that, you know, Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi, they're almost like the Richard Burton, Liz Taylor of the Italian tabloid press. Like, these are big, big stars. So, you know, in Italian, there's tons and tons of stuff written. And it occurred to me that, that in English, there might not be that much stuff. Mm. <laughs> but thankfully, um, a film like Suspiria just demands writing and demands thinking and demands good writing. It really, you can't write or think lazily about Suspiria because it's a dead end. So I was very fortunate that both academic writing and, and more sort of traditional film criticism or pop writing, people really en masse stepped up to the plate. I was reading on Kindle edition and I kept copying over quotes of what you'd say because I just loved so much of it. One of the ones that I love that you write is how the image of Susie blindly stabbing in the dark trying to locate the monstrous Helena Marcos in Suspiria's climax provides an apt metaphor for the experience of watching the film, which prioritises the sensorial experience over things like narrative and character development. Why do you think Argento succeeds at this where so many others fail? I think because he's so unrelenting about it. I, I haven't interviewed Argento, but I, I did have the good fortune of speaking at length, length to the film's cinematographer, Luciano Travoli. He speaks with great respect for Dario Argento, obviously, as a, 
as a collaborator, but very clearly as the mastermind of the project. There's never any doubt about that. Tavoli was very clear that Argento gave him room to experiment, that he really encouraged him to, to experiment. And I think that this is the secret of, of Suspiria. It is this unrelenting determination on Argento's part, both in his own job and the way that he would encourage his collaborators to not settle for second best, to not dumb it down, to not, you know, to never give in to this sort of the omnipresent sensorial dominance of the things that make Suspiria Suspiria. I think it's very funny. I, there's one of my favorite, there are bits of Suspiria that I do. I think Argento is very funny. I think he's not really credited for that as much as he should be. But one of my favorite things about Suspiria is that the whole story, as much of it as there is, is about an American girl at a, at a dance school in Europe. What is the secret? What is the secret of the irises? And it tells us in the opening credits because we have, you know, the, the soundtrack at the start, you know, the words in the Goblin soundtrack are witch, witch, witch. <laughs> so the whole, oh, I wonder what the mystery is, is just to me so funny. And that the, he, he tells us straight out explicitly from the very beginning. And I think that's part of the power of the film in, in that it is this sort of, you know, it's there, it's there for the taking. The secret of the irises is that there's no secret. We know all along and we go along for the ride and we go along knowingly. A wonderful British film academic called Patricia McCormack and it's a quote, one of those quotes that I wish that I wrote, but she said once, and I'm paraphrasing here, that, that Suspiria demands new ways of understanding and engaging with film and that that makes it a really radical movie and, and I believe that so deeply. We're not um, conditioned to, to uh, get narrative clues based on like the ambient score in the background of films and so I think for a lot of people that just goes right over their head. Suspiria demands that you watch, you, you kind of can't bring your film language to Suspiria in a sense. I think that's one of the beauties of, of horror and of body genres in general I guess is that they demand that we experience films in that sensory way, you know, that we, that we do engage with them more through our bodies than through our intellect, which is an incredible experience as a spectator. It's a difficult thing <laughs> as a writer. Yes. <laughs> I would have experienced it as a teenager and it must have been on DVD through uh, my partner, the guy I was dating at the time. He loved it. Every time I watch Asperia, I um, love it a little more. I think the very first time I watched it, I was a little bit affronted by it and just sort of didn't know how to digest it. So my appreciation of it kind of grows the more I watch it and the older I get. That's a beautiful story. I love the idea of Suspiria being a gift that you kind of give to people and that you take from people and then pass on to other people. I think that's one of the precious things about cult film. It's communicated, you know, that, that it is like a gift. Like, yes. I, I want you to watch favorite film <laughs> yeah yeah you, you watch it because somebody you know tells you about it rather than because you know the poster of avatar is everywhere and you can't escape it exactly it's just that it's not kind of on mass pop cultural obliteration you know that you kind of see it almost because you have to there is something precious about it and i think that's changed over time like i think the internet obviously and social media have changed the way that those the way that we use film as a way to connect as human beings not just um in terms of having talking about them like you and i are talking about them but introducing them to people, you know, people that we like. And, but I think it's still there. I think it's really still there. The films might be a little more easier to access in most cases now, but I think that that spirit is still there with cult film especially. Is Snow White an influence on Suspiria in terms of colour? 
or, or does it go beyond that, do you think? I think it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly being mentioned that Argento very much wanted to almost do like a live action Fantasia. And yes, yeah, Snow White, I think absolutely, you know, that kind of early Disney and certainly Snow White in particular is an inescapable point of reference. Daria Nicolodi, and, uh, who co-wrote the script and was meant to be in the film, except I think she broke her ankle. She does a cameo at the start. They researched a lot. They researched folklore. They researched um, real witches. They researched fairy tales, things like that. So absolutely. But I think you can't underestimate also the impact of somebody like um, like Mario Bava, who um, is a huge impact, not just on Argento, but on Italian horror uh, and Italian cinema, really. Um, I mean, you can feel the impact of Bava on something like um, Federico Fellini's segment in Spirits of the Damned. And he does a segment called Toby Dammit, and the Toby Dammit segment is just a love letter to Mario Barber's Kill Baby Kill, especially. And Kill Baby Kill, I think, you know, the very last episode of the second series of Twin Peaks has a very explicit reference to Kill Baby Kill. So I think the impact of Mario Barber, not just on Dario Argento or Italian horror, but on really on cinema, really can't be under understated. Do you consider Suspiria's story or narrative weak? No. And Argento very much, from what I've read, he takes great pride in his story writing and his script writing, which he should. And I think it's an easy trap to fall into to wholly dismiss the story. What I think, the way that I would phrase it is that there's other things that surpass it in importance. Yes. What Suspiria is about is the experience of watching Suspiria. And I think it is that much, much, much more that it is the story of a ballet dancer who, you know, goes to Europe. So I don't, I'm conscious not to diminish or mock the story, but I do think that in terms of how it contrasts with particularly the cinematography and the soundtrack, obviously, in the way that Dario just brings sound and vision together, the story just necessarily pales in comparison because those two aspects are just so over the top and so aggressive. I mean, I, I think the story of Suspiria is unusual and excellent. I, I, I'm really fascinated by it. And I love how all these unexplained elements come in, like the maggot infestation or the sudden dog attack. I think that it's really interesting and ambiguous. And I, I like that kind of storytelling. Me too. Look, I was fortunate enough to interview the beautiful Barbara um, Magnolfi, who plays Olga, who is one of my favorite characters in the film. I think Olga and Franca Scagnetti, who doesn't have a character name, but she's the cook. Yeah. who has the knife that she shines. I think she's incredible. But, yeah, Barbara plays Olga, and um, she she's really fascinating. She's sort of talked both to me and, and in interviews that I've read with her about other potential aspects of the plot that weren't included in the film. Mm. So Barbara always felt um, in her discussions with Dario Argento that Olga was sort of in with the witches, that she was Olga was sort of the student she was sort of existed somewhere between the coven and the students and that she would sort of, um, and we see we see clues of this at the start of the film where Susie is staying in Olga's apartment, that Olga's almost conscripting young women to join the coven for Helena Marcos, which is just so exciting <laughs> for me. It's like none, none of that really makes it into the film. According to Barbara, um, Argento's nickname for her, my Italian is terrible so I'm going to say it in English, but was The Little Witch. He's on set, he would call her the little witch. <laughs> that's great. I kind of get that feeling watching Olga that that's definitely possible. She has real, real presence in that film. And you, I think a lot of the girls do. And I, I love the interaction between the students. I love how they talk a lot about money. 
I think that's a really interesting thing. And again, it's like, you know, one of my favourite little tidbits of the film is the McDonald's sign at the start of the film when Susie gets in the taxi. I didn't notice the McDonald's sign until I read it in your book and then I rewatched Suspiria and I saw it and it was in plain view. I, it's possibly the nerdiest observation in the whole film, but <laughs> I was so excited when I saw it. There is that really important conversation with Susie and uh, Udo Kier as Dr. Frank Mandel and Rudolf Schindler, who's Professor Milius, and of course um, Schindler is from The Exorcist. But in that conversation, there's a huge amount of the, the story is contained in this sort of small daylight segment, one of the few segments of the film that's outside, one of the few segments of the film that, that is in daylight. It's a really interesting sequence. But they talk a lot about money. They talk a lot about Helena Marcos being driven by economic desires and greed, and, and that's a really interesting line of investigation when you start looking at things like the McDonald's sign. You know, we're in this totally, you know, Susie works, walks through the doors of the airport at the start of the film, and the idea is, is that she's gone from the supposedly real world into this sort of fantastic dark Europe. But the first thing she sees is the McDonald's sign. So, you know, the, the line between the real and the fantastic perhaps is a little more complex than we might normally give Suspiria credit for. And it's not an accident. I mean, you don't include that many, you know, McDonald's signs. It's not just the one. It's like a row of them. Yes. Um, I just refuse to believe. I mean, maybe it wasn't consciously decided to include them, but they certainly decided to keep them. Yeah, and it's like that conversa- the conversation that she has with the girls when she first arrives at the school and they're all very much about money. Again, that comes down to this sort of desire for wealth and material objects. Yeah, Olga's the one that really, really drives that, which again feeds into Barbara Bagnoffi's, you know, idea that, that, that Olga actually, you know, behind the scenes was much more of a player than just the bitchy, <laughs> you know, the bitchy dancer. Uh, and although she is, she does bitch you very, very well. <laughs> She's just glorious. Um, I'm quite besotted with Barbara from Agnoffi. She was in a, um, a terrific giallo called Sister of Ursula. It's a, it's a lesser giallo, I think is fair to say, but she's just got so much presence. She's just fabulous. Another thing that I loved about your book was that it um, cited all these different films and it got me really, really excited to see them. So the other night I watched um, The Stendhal Syndrome, which I'd never seen. A new film by the master of the psychological thriller, Dario Argento. And I entered a painting. It was as if I, if I was suddenly immersed in it. Crazy. What happened to you when your Fizzi is known as the Stendhal syndrome? That's the film that got me, made me a committed Argentophile. Um, my first book was on rape revenge film. The whole motivation, I did my master's thesis on the Stendhal syndrome. And then after that, I decided that I wanted to write a book on rape revenge film in general, really just to explain in depth why the Stendhal syndrome is so radical. Um, it's an extraordinary film, an extraordinary film. It breaks my heart how critically undervalued that film is because it's deeply intelligent and deeply moving. I think Asia Argento, I don't think any other, a lot of people were creeped out that Dario Argento would cast his own daughter in a rape revenge film. (laughs) But I, I just don't think anybody else could have done that role the way that she did. I think she understood the politics of the film and I think she understood the, the art of it and how the art and the politics intersect, intersected. I think that they were absolutely on the same wavelength and maybe maybe in a way that only only somebody that you know that well could be and I think the magic of the film is that relationship yeah she's magnetic in that film and it's amazing that she doesn't ever vie for sympathy at any point she's really it's it's a challenging performance it was really fascinating to watch it's, it's a film I never tire of I think her characterization is very very clever and very shrewd mm. very very sh- I think there's a desperation in her role and in her performance that is meta. I think that it's actually a film about rape revenge film. She's similar to 
Barbara in that she's got this just wonderfully beautiful face. Absolutely. Asia Argento once said in an interview, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I apologize, but something that Dario once, once described her as a, like a, Stradivarius, like a beautiful musical instrument, and that that was their relationship with him as director and her, her as actor. She was the instrument, and he was the he was the musician, and that together they they made beautiful music. And I, I just think that's a beautiful thing to say, not just about a colleague, but about about your father. I think that's a really wonderful. I think it's a really they have a really strong collaborative relationship that's often underestimated. And it's rare to see people who are father and daughter be in a truly like creative collaboration. You address the longstanding argument in your book that amongst certain factions, um, people consider Argento a misogynistic filmmaker and that Suspiria um, certainly has has that in it. How did he develop this reputation and what are your thoughts on this? There's a very famous quote attributed to Dario Argento that is cited in a very important book and a very good book on gender and the horror film by a woman called Carol J. Clover. The book is called Men, Women and Chainsaws and it came out, I think, in 1992, 1993. I should know that. It's appalling. I'm going from memory here. (laughs) And the quote is something along the lines of, you know, I I would rather watch a beautiful woman get murdered in a film than an ugly one. And this has been cited a lot. Um, as a kind of typical of the misogyny of horror films. It's almost like a go-to quote. So I was curious about that because I'm just a huge Argento fan. I know a lot of women that are huge Argento fans. It's like, okay, how do we reconcile this? How do I start thinking through this? So I decided that I would find the original quote. It's like, okay, maybe the context is different. No, I found the original quote, read the entire interview, there's no ambiguity. I mean, it's, you know, he says what he says. He certainly doesn't apologize for that. And he says that in the quote, you know, if you read the longer quote, I think he says, people will try to make it sound like I haven't said this, but no, this is exactly what I think. And I'm certainly not going to try to twist his words or to apologize for him. That's, I don't have the right to do that. But where that left me was um, in a curious place, because this is a, um, a filmmaker who's really been embraced by women fans. And Argento himself has said that most of his fans are women. From my own experience, from my own anecdotal experience, I would agree with that. I know so many, I know more female Argento fans than I do male. And so it's like, well, maybe maybe that's okay. You know, maybe we live in a world where we don't, you know, especially online, I think there's a tendency to say, okay, this person's a feminist and this person's not. You know, we have these very clear binary distinctions. And I think people like Dario Argento and Abel Ferrara, another one of my favorite filmmakers who I've also written a book about his uh, 1981 rape revenge film, Ms. 45, that's my last book. They've done some amazingly progressive things and they've done things that are not so progressive. And maybe that's okay. Maybe they have the right, we all have our contradictions. Where that left me was, okay, well, I can't twist Argento's words. I can't make him something that he's not. But what have women said about him? What about his women fans? You know, what about these women critics? What have they said? Maybe I'm listening to the wrong person. That really led me to people like Patricia McCormack, who's a a huge Argento fan and speaks of his work with such eloquence and such passion and such intelligence. But also the very famous postmodern American writer, uh, the now deceased Kathy Acker, who in the 90s was like sort of the queen of homo feminism. You know, she's this sort of icon. She's this wonderful force of nature as a, apart from anything else rather than, you know, not she's more than a writer. She was a sort of pop cultural phenomena, I think, Kathy Acker. And she just loved Argento and she loves Suspiria so much that she rewrote the entire film in a chapter of one of her books, which is just magnificent. 
I think everything you need to know about women, what do women think of, of Dario Argento? I think maybe that's just an important question is what does Dario Argento think about women? Because I think it's a very complicated relationship and I don't think it's one that can be easily written off with, oh, he's a feminist, oh, he's a pig. I think it's very complicated and I think it's complicated with most people, if I was to be honest. You do reference Kathy Acker's book and I have to seek it out and try and find if I can read that because that sounds really interesting. It's pretty challenging. She's not frightened of using C words. She's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle to find a misogynistic angle in Argento films only because he I, – I only think of misogyny in terms of if women are – relegated to the love interest and they're just, you know, one dimensional, but Argento's films always have women in them and they're always rich characterizations. And so I, even though I, I understand the whole thing about violence towards women and everything, and you know, that's a, that's a very serious issue because he gives these women, like he makes them full bodied and gives them life. I see more misogyny in a film like Godzilla, where there's one woman in it and she's the girlfriend of the guy who's going off to fight the monster. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an issue with the glamorization of a lot of the deaths against women. I mean, it's very mm -hmm. interesting because there's no nudity in it. You know, he'd originally written that script to have much, much younger girls, instead of either eight or nine years old, and his producer just said, look, there's no way in hell they can let you make this film with nine-year-old girls in it. And you can see him kind of reworking that later in his film Phenomena. Um, which is also set in a girls' school, and, and again, with much, much younger girls. Mm. And one of my favourite parts of the set design of Suspiria is there's one moment where Susie opens a door at the end of a corridor and the doorknob is deliberately set up quite high so that she has to reach up to it like a little child would. You know, there's little clever things like that in there. Yeah. I think with Argento, and I think I honestly think this about um, uh, Italian horror, I guess, and horror often more generally, but certainly the Giallo film, in that I think, whether consciously or not, I think you have to make a distinction between biological binaries of male and female. And what I think are more complicated, and certainly from a from a critical perspective, more interesting distinctions between masculine and feminine. Because I think in Argento's films in particular, you often have women with quite masculine traits. So it's not a case that men are masculine and women are feminine. I think that he plays with that and he blurs that and he collapses that and he deconstructs that and he challenges that. Um, one of the more interesting ways that this is done, I think, is in um, Tenebrae. I'm not sure if you've seen Tenebrae. No. But there's a, a kind of primal scene that's returned to in that, which is a, a kind of sexy woman in red high heels who tortures a man on a beach, sort of sexually humiliates this man on a beach. And that's paid by, played by a very, very famous trans, transgender model, I think she was. I don't know if she was an actor. But nothing in the film acknowledges that she's transgender. It's only if you read up about it that you that you know that. And in Deep Red, there's a character called Carlo who's gay and has a, a lover, but his lover is played, his male lover is played by a woman, female actor. So these things are really interesting. But then again, I think it's really difficult to just straight out say, oh, no, no, Argento's really progressive with this stuff because then we go back to um, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, the XXY killer, this sort of chromosomal... <sighs> How would you, abomination, I think it's presented pretty much in the film. That, that film is sort of very, it has, you know, there's a, there's a gay character that's not presented in the most progressive ways, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he can be both. I think that we need to have space in our critical imagination to not have to write people off into these at all, like, oh, yes, he's really progressive. Oh, no, he's really regressive. It's like people can, we all say things that are really shitty sometimes and then we all say things that we think, yeah, cool, maybe I'm a decent human being. That's not by means of apology, but I think that we just need to have space to speak about all of these aspects of, of filmmakers and of artists and of each other, that we call each other out when we fuck up, but we just try not to fuck up.
What do you make of like the lesbian overtones in the film, which you write in the book are distinct yet indefinable? That's actually something that I, in retrospect, it's one of the few things that I wish that I spoke about a bit more. I think it's really interesting and it is something that he comes back to in Tenebrae in particular, which has a, a, a homophobic killer. And one of the early murders in that film is a, a lesbian couple, a hypersexualized lesbian couple. <laughs> so this is obviously something that's, you know, certainly around this period was of interest. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, I guess, we come down particularly to Alita Vali, um, who plays Miss Tanner. Very, again, that's really classic, you know, it's a woman, but she's very masculine. She has a very masculine presence. Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc. I mean, there is this idea, you know, that this, that this is not a film with men in it, really. I mean, there are a couple of male characters, but they're either there to provide plot details or they're like Mark, who we see um, the young male dancer at the school who we think might be a love interest for Susie who sort of starts off that way and then he's just, he vanishes. Like she's got no need for that. Yeah, I think the film is really canny. And I think it would be easy to misread it as I think some people have as, you know, all these evil lesbian witches are trying to train the girls to be witches, you know, witches equals lesbian. I think it's more about these lines between masculinity and femininity as it is about explicit same-sex romances or, you know, sexual encounters. I think there's a lot going on and I would like room to think that through. I think, I don't think I'm there yet. I think there's definitely stuff going on on that front though. It's interesting that all the male characters in Suspiria are disadvantaged in some way. You know, like Mark is, they call Mark, Mark is poor. And um, obviously you have Daniel who's, who's blind. Is it, he's from Romania? Pablo. Pablo. Pablo? Yeah. And he's, he's really (laughs) ugly and can't speak. Um, English. I, I love Pablo so much. That scene with his teeth where, where Alita Vali's Miss Tanner um, talks about his jinctivitis and how disgustingly ugly he is. It's just, it's an incredible, it's one of those examples about how funny the film is and about how funny Argento can be. I love Pablo. <laughs> oh, he's funny. I like how she says, he's very ugly. Don't be afraid to say so. <laughs> <laughs> and in the next breath, she's saying he's very handsome with his new teeth. One of my favourite um male characters in this film doesn't speak um and he's barely on screen and it's a little guy called Jacopo Mariani who also played the young child in Deep Red in the primal scene flashback sequences in Deep Red now uh, Mariani plays Albert who is basically Madame Blanc's familiar he's I think the nephew yes a little creepy kid with the, the blonde bowl cut. <laughs> yep. Very little outside in his career outside of these two Argento films. But he does have very small roles, but his presence is incredible in both of them. Um, I think he's really fascinating in Suspiria because he's part of that moment that Susie is bewitched by Franca Scagnetti, mm-hmm. uh, the Romanian cook who doesn't speak. And I think mm-hmm. the power of um, Jacopo Mariani and Franca Scagnetti together in that sequence, I think it's hard to pick a favourite sequence in Suspiria, but if I had to, I absolutely think of that moment where the, they flash the, uh, it's like a serving knife or something, a serving, you know what I mean? It's like a triangle of silver. It's, um, I don't think it's a knife. It looks like a some looks, kind of utensil. Yeah, like a, looks like half a star or something. You know, I didn't really consider Albert until I read in your book about when they have the maggot infestation, you have that very composed scene of them all gathered around and you wrote that his place sort of beside madam, the madam is indicative of how highly valued he is amongst this group of women. He's what, in, I guess, traditional terms, he's, he's a witch's familiar. You know, he, he, that's what he is. He absolutely takes the role of a witch's familiar. The second that the light hits Scagnetti's 
silver object and shines into Susie's eyes. There's incredible soundtrack work going on at this time. It's just a beautiful sequence. It's only a couple of minutes long. Mm. But the second that that light hits Susie's eyes, Albert starts smiling. And the second the light drops from her eyes and the music dies down, he stops smiling. It's, it's un- I mean, it's incredible, the detail that's gone into that. Pure joy on his face. He's beaming. He's not just grinning. He's absolutely beaming. It's remarkable. Yeah, and I like how you wrote that that could potentially mean that maybe they're taking something from Susie, like an energy or, or something. I mean, I think the first time I saw it, I thought, well, he's just getting some kind of perverse thrill out of this. But I think it's more than that. Is the bewitching of Susie happening just from that light? Or is it coming from from this this child that is effectively part of the you know is definitely part of the coven but has this role of the witch's familiar? Is he part of the spell making process? Yeah. And the film just you know I mean it's it just leaves it um, you know there were no VCRs when Suspiria came out in every home so people wouldn't have been doing the pause 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 pause. So I'm assuming most um, audiences on time at the time of its original release wouldn't have picked that up. And indeed, I've seen this film a million times and I've never picked it up. Yeah, I think, yeah, it is. It feels kind of endless. And because there are so many ambiguities and so many unanswered questions, just for fun, the other day I watched the film and wrote down every every unanswered question that I had about it. How did the bat get into her room? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, and actually I didn't even consider that one. So I wanted to know why Pat Hingle was expelled. My theory would be was that she was she discovered the witches. I'd like to know what they what the front was though, what they told the girls. Olga says, yeah. Oh, she was a busybody, she was awful, she did something horrible. Which is really complicated by the by Barbara's story that she was that Olga was actually part of the cover. So she would have been propagating whatever fiction they put out there. And fiction when you start thinking this stuff through, you know, you start creating separate narrative universes. But it's yeah, it's interesting that that piece of information was delivered by Olga. Here's a question for you. When Pat Hingle arrives at the apartment building at the start, so she runs out of the school, runs past Susie, we see her arriving at this beautiful, crazy pink deco style apartment building and she runs through the foyer and she enters an elevator and goes upstairs to her friend's apartment where, we, of course, we have this incredible opening sequence. There's a chair in the elevator. Why is there a chair in the elevator? <laughs> Maybe this is just something from the olden days that they that people just needed a little sit. This isn't a question about Suspiria. It's really more of a kind of um, historical interior design question. Uh, that whole that whole apartment is such a strange thing. That really makes you feel like, okay, there's where I live and then there's Italy or in Munich, I should say. It was shot in Munich, wasn't it? Yeah, look, a lot of it was done on uh, studio sets in Italy, but certainly the, um, the Koenigsplatz sequence with Daniel... Um, you know, that was on location. And the the, out, the exteriors of the dance school, that's a real building. And, yeah, that was um, – they, they re, when they burnt it at the end of the film, spoiler for those who haven't seen it, although I don't know why you've been listening to this if you haven't. That's right. Um, they, they rebuilt it uh, on a, on a, um, in a sound studio in – sorry, on a sound stage in, in Rome. Argento apparently spent a lot of time in Munich. Um, one of my favourite little tidbits was that he was hanging out with – uh, David Bowie and Fassbinder, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, one of my other favourite directors. And the idea, it's like if I could crush any moment of history, it would be to be in like a Munich beer hall in the 70s with Argento, Bowie and Fassbinder. Like that's wild. <laughs> After a day's shooting think, of Suspiria. Just wild. Udo Kier, um, who's honestly one of my favourite actors, oh, just one of my favourite people in the world. I just think he's amazing. But he, um, uh, he plays Dr. Frank Mandel and he said that he, he didn't speak English. He was living with Fazbinder when he got the role um, and he didn't speak a word of English and they gave him English 
lines and he just said them. He had no idea what they meant. Oh, wow. Um, but Fassbinder was apparently not happy about him doing the film. Why? So, I mean, there's a question. There is a question for you that is lost to time, the late Renner Werner Fassbinder. Why didn't he want Udo Kier to do Suspiria? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think it hurts the film that Argento couldn't ultimately cast, you know, girls between 10 and, t- and 14? No, you know, it's a good question. I never really thought about it. I've never thought so because, as I said, I think in a way he kind of resolves that with phenomena, which I think I might be alone on this, but I always think of phenomena almost as an informal sequel to Suspiria. You know, he does get his younger girls finally in the in the girls' school. But I think that the, the way that, you know, people don't really talk about the strong performances in Suspiria, but Jessica Harper... I mean, I've obviously already talked about Barbara McNulty, but Jessica Harper is incredible. She assumed that Argento hired her on the back of the De Palma Phantom of the Paradise, which yep. was a huge, huge success in Italy. And Tavoli said, you know, that before you mentioned Snow White, you know, that was consciously how he saw Jessica Harper. You know, she looks like Snow White. If you put an image of Snow White from the Disney film next to Jessica Harper, they have the same eyes, they have the same face shape. Mm. Um, but there's real girlishness to Susie Banyan that Jessica Harper brings to that character that at the start you can almost confuse for naivety. Um, And this is why I'm very conscious not to dismiss the story because I think Susie's story is really important in that she grows up through Suspiria. You know, she really learns to be, she learns things, not just about what's going on at that particular girls' school, but she learns to look after herself. She learns investigative skills. You know, there's a real kind of Nancy Drew thing going on where she's got clues and she's counting footsteps. But I think the thing that's so bloody magical about Suspiria is that this development goes on completely outside of romance. And we are, we have that temptation at the start to think, oh, you know, her and, her and Mark are going to hook up. And the film very deliberately just writes that off. It's like, no, this is her journey. It's not about her journey with a guy. Um, or with anybody else. It's just about her journey. She owns it and she changes. And the very last shot of Suspiria is Susie walking out of that building smiling. And I think it's it's so powerful. She comes out of it a changed person and a better person. You kind of make that argument through the, the whole book. And I, I loved that because I kept reading that there was no arc for Susie. And I really did feel like there, there was a definite transition from how she'd begun to where she finishes off. Well, I think it's interesting because it's, it's really so internalized in her. You know, it's not a journey that she makes through dialogue. You know, we're, we're used to seeing that journey. You know, you get a broken heart, but then you move on. You know what I mean? You know, yep. the kind of teen journey um, is usually through family or, or through some kind of encounter with some, some shitty boy, you know, some Miguel Bosé Mark guy, you know, the, the random cutie at school or whatever. Yeah. And it just sets that up and then consciously rejects it. <laughs> and she just... Her, her journey belongs to herself. And again, it, with a film that's so aggressive in so many ways, it's so overt and so consciously in your face with so many of its aspects that this part is actually pulled back on. Explains why I think it is kind of hidden. You know, oh, no, she's just a really two-dimensional nothing character. Yeah. She's a different person when she leaves that school to what she is when she arrives. Alex, I'm conscious of I'm not wanting to take up too much more of your time. I just wanted to know, um, is there anything you're working on at the moment? Good question. <laughs> Stop. My book on April Ferrara's Miss 45 came out at the start of the year. So at the moment i am kind of got my fingers in lots of pies. I'm finishing off a major project, which is really exciting. 
Um, I'm working on an edited collection on the films of Elaine May, who's very much as different from Dario Argento as you could possibly imagine, but also one of my favourite filmmakers. And there's a criminal lack of writing about Elaine May's films. But I'm an editor at the journal Senses of Cinema, um, which takes up a fair bit of time, and I'm a film critic uh, on Triple R Radio in Melbourne. So, yeah, we're about to go into the Melbourne International Film Festival where I co-curated a program on Australian women's filmmaking from the 1980s and early 1990s. So that's all keeping me very busy. Alex, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been such a pleasure for me to be able to speak with the author of that book. As I say, I had such a fun time with it. You're, you're absolutely wonderful and brilliant and you, you've enhanced Asperia for me so much. That is so nice to hear, Luke. Thank you for your time and thank you for the lovely conversation. I could talk about this film until I died. You are helping me with that goal. <laughs> Who is it? Who's there? <laughs> I've been expecting you. The American girl. I knew you'd come. You want to kill me? You want to kill Elena Marcus? <laughs> <laughs> I think what's also interesting about it, like when you talk about just the visual side of things, like this beautiful, stunning lighting and color scheme that's shown throughout the film, a lot of the time it doesn't feel like it's even really reflecting the action of what's going on. And that's really strange. Like that's that amazing scene when they're sleeping over in the, in the auditorium with all those beds. You, we're introduced to this, like, like the figure of Helena Marcos and stuff, but it's bathed in pink. Pink is such a childlike colour and obviously that gets into like he obviously, uh, Argento wrote the film originally with 12-year-olds in mind and then his producer father told him that it'll just get banned, there's no way he can do it and then there's those sort of visual cues like uh, how he kept the door handles at the height of the actress's head still so that still felt like they were small Yeah, and they, and he didn't change any of the dialogue. Which is a bit of a problem. It's 100% a problem at times. The film's so surreal that it gets away with it. You're not, if you're yeah. looking to be convinced by Suspiria, yeah. then you're, you're not looking at it through the right lens. You're not going to enjoy it. And I think also there's so many jump cuts used. There's such a feeling of, I guess, uh, displacement. Yeah, yeah, okay. Would be my word. You don't know where you are a lot of the time. Yeah. But really, uh, you, if you were to tell someone, oh, you don't know what's going on and you don't know where you are, they'd think, oh, well, they've done a pretty bad job of that. Yeah. But when this movie, that's not the case. That's, no, that's intentional. It's this, the, that is the feeling that you're supposed to have. I think Suspiria was the last film to actually use the dye process, the Technicolor dye process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the last film to be dye transferred. That's it. Um, no, that's true. And just going back to what you said about sound being important and about what you hear being more important than what you see, that's not only true for the audience, it's actually true for the characters. Because yeah. for Susie, the entire mystery of the of the Academy hinges on the unremembered words, secret and iris, that Pat utters to herself for disappearing in the woods and being killed. And the maggot, uh, during the maggot infestation, Susie works out Helena Marcos is with them because she identifies the unique snoring. I'm sorry, Sarah works that out. And later Susie finds her way to the secret chamber by listening to the footsteps of the teachers. And then once she discovers Helena Marcos, she can hear her, but she can't see her. So there's these constant allusions and emphasis placed on sound as a means to unlock riddles and to arrive at the truth. Can I also add that I was lucky enough to see a really the new 4K master, remaster print at the GU Filmhouse, which was fantastic. But we had one audience member that obviously went into it like that. Oh, God. And she was 
just yelling out things consistently throughout the film, saying like, "Oh, her, her mouth is like their mouths aren't even saying the same words and stuff." And it's like, "Why are you here?" <laughs> I was. So oh, like, did you do a George Costanza? Shut your traps and stop kicking the seats. We're trying to watch the movie. And if I have to tell you again, we're going to take it outside and I'm going to show you what it's like. Do you understand me? Now shut your mouths or I'll shut them for you. And if you think I'm kidding, just try me. Try me. Because I would love it. I, did, I didn't because I'm I was... show you what it's like. But the good thing is the film is so loud that it did drown her out eventually. Oh, that's annoying. It was... And they, and they oh. drank a bottle... It was like her. It was a couple and they drank like a bottle of red wine and they smelled like bin water. And they, and, and they were in front of us and me and Em were just like... So, Cameron, you watched it in a, a stunning 4K restoration. Luke, you watched it on Blu-ray, and I watched my old DVD copy. <laughs> it's like when we went and saw The Witch, and the, that the film ended, and we heard some girl go, you've got to be fucking kidding. Like, why are you, what are you doing here? Getting back on topic, since it's such a, a visual movie, is there, and I know we would all have an opinion on this, but what's your favourite shot? There's so many of them. I mean, I have a clear one, and I spoke to... Luke about it, the um, scene where she's kind of, uh, Susie's forced to do her ballet at the start, even though she's not feeling very good and she's okay. going side to side and everything. And then there's a kind of jump cut to up higher than her and there's some pretty severe light coming in from behind her, which is at the top of the screen. She's in the middle of the screen and then there's shadows being cast on the bottom of the screen. This is just before she faints. Right. And she's on her tippy toes the entire time. And it's just so... Well done. Yeah. Just jumping up higher than her, which is a jump that, you know, if you were doing a technical filmmaking course, they'd say don't do that yeah, kind of sure. cut. But Argento doesn't. He, he does it, sorry. And it's just such a convincing shot for me. That scene always reminds me of, you know, Vincent Castle going, attack it, attack it in Black Swan. Yeah. They're just very similar. Vincent Castle. Vincent Castle. Vincent Castle. <laughs> What would yours be? Yeah, I haven't really thought of it. I don't think of Suspiria in terms of having peaks and lulls. I just feel like it's very consistently interesting visually. So there's no favourite camera setup? or You know, it's probably really boring to say this, but I think the most visually striking moment for me is when she's walking down that hallway and the cook is polishing that silver and the light catches her eye and she starts to feel sick. So that's right, before my scene. Yeah. That, and I've got to say, when I was watching this on my own, on my parents' big TV, I had all the lights out. And the last scene where she's confronting Helena Marcos freaked me out. Really? Watching it on my own, yeah, it freaked me out. And I thought, wow, this is really scary. And I'll just Because her voice is so frightening. That's the only scene that I have um, visually a problem with. Uh, just the outline of Helena Marcos. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only thing in the movie that I would pick on. It's probably the only thing in the film that's probably... Uh, Aged. Well, it looks a little bit like a charmed episode, doesn't it? <laughs> but I mean, look, the, the film, I mean, the gore effects are not good. You don't, I mean, they're. But that's part of Jello in general, yeah, really. Yeah, Favourite visual scene would be the, it's almost like the taxi cab point of view as, as we're heading up to the school. Mm. That vista of that amazing architecture is. Like it's probably one of the most plain shots in the film, but it's just the architecture. Like the production design on this film is yeah. amazing. The opening of the film is one of the best openings of a film ever, and nothing happens. Yeah. But it's just done so well. It sets the tone immediately, and it's totally gripping. Mm. Seeing this sort of fragile woman emerge from an airport during this 
terrifying rainstorm and get into a cab and her vulnerability and the eeriness of it is just spot on. This whole thing, Suspiria, is based on the mythology of the three mothers, which was presented in essayist Thomas de Quincey's psychological fantasy piece, Suspiria de Profundis, written in 1845. And he created three sorrows, Our Lady of Sighs, Our Lady of Darkness, and Our Lady of Tears. Suspiria is about the sighs, Inferno is about the darkness, and Mother of Tears is about the tears, obviously. Did you guys see any of these sequels? I've seen Inferno, and I think Inferno is a solid film and solid entry into the genre. I haven't seen Mother of Tears. Uh, Yeah, I've seen both of them. Saw Inferno a long time ago. I can't really remember it too much. Mother of Tears was, you know, for a recent Argento film, it was passable. But he's really not a great filmmaker anymore. I don't think anyone would really disagree with that. It's fairly... Um, it's fairly well understood in the same way that there's this been this real fall from grace for John Carpenter. Argento's best work is well behind him, sadly. You can't talk about John Carpenter like that anymore. Why? Oh, he's still alive, isn't he? It's Wes Craven. <laughs> oh, what? Well, we can't be truthful about the dead. Hitler was a gem. <laughs> and Wes Craven would still make the occasional film that wasn't terrible, like Red Eye. Yeah. So um, about characters, Linda Schultz-Sass... Um, wrote an essay, The Mother of All Horror Movies, and she wrote um, that the characters are not psychologically developed, but they correspond with folkloric types. So you have a protagonist on a quest by which she will lose her innocence, a helper figure shows the way, and a malevolent maternal trio composed of dance instructor Miss Tanner, administrator Madame Blanche, the whiteness of whose name stands in ironic contrast to the Black Queen of Witchcraft, and then obviously you have Helena Marcos, a 19th century Greek immigrant, and now the school's elusive headmistress. I thought that was interesting, the idea of the characters, because a lot of people talk about Susie not having an arc, the characters not being very fleshed out. You know, you have those ridiculous, I mean... The scene where Olga says people whose names start with the letter S are snakes, and then the two girls go, mm, yeah. mm, it's like really dumb. You know, it's, yeah. it, if it were two 12 year olds, you'd totally buy it. But because these girls are clearly in their like, late teens, early 20s, mm. it just feels very silly. You can't stab a beating heart of a 12 year old on film, it just doesn't work. I want someone to try. It doesn't fly unless it's in a war context. I've never seen that in a war film. I don't know, I'm sure 12-year-olds are killed in Schindler's List, I don't know. So we're all in agreement then that the actual plot of Suspiria really doesn't matter? It's interesting to look at movies about witches, because there's not many of them, I guess, in the later half of the last century. Uh, And I think Hollywood always went for the comedy genre when they did witches, so this is something completely different, and they seem fewer and further apart than zombie and werewolf and vampire movies, definitely. Yeah, especially quality films. I mean, obviously, we've had The Witch recently, the Robert Eggers film, which is fantastic, but, I mean, there aren't many. Rosemary's Baby preceded Suspiria. That would be probably the only really other notable one. It's strange. It doesn't actually feel like a witch film to me, even though it's classed as one of the, you know, one of the best witch films. It's not how you associate witches generally. Like, there aren't those stereotypes. They're not standing over a cauldron. You don't hear much about anything. The, the, The main villain is a snoring lady. <laughs> like, none of this, like, actually lends... No, I think it's ...lends to the that. stereotype of witches, and I feel like plot isn't important, but story is. So, like, the specifics on how you get to that end game aren't particularly important, but the weight of how, like, the whole... Like, the blind guy that gets attacked by the dog, that scene is amazing. I don't give a fuck about the blind guy. 
I feel sorry for him because I'm just that nice of a guy. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. But like, I couldn't care less about that. But I, but the thing I was focused on was the shadow of those witches on the, yeah. on that. And I think that sequence is stunning. The Helena Marcos person uh, at the end was like some old singing lady off the street or something. Apparently she's a prostitute. That's the... Yeah, and she's uncredited. Yeah, like a 78-year-old hooker. I think it was the British Film Institute in 2013 named the 10 best films with gothic themes, and they named Nosferatu, Dracula, both the 1931 and 1958 versions, Frankenstein, Rebecca, The Pit and the Pendulum, Rosemary's Baby, Near Dark, and The Orphanage. And uh, I think there's a case to be made for each and every one of those movies that the plot is far less important than the atmosphere. Mm. And so I think gothic horror movies seem to be successful often in spite of that plot uh, rather than because of them. It's really funny that they very deliberately did not include uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. They specified not that one. Well, the 1931 one from Universal and the 1958 one from Hammer, that's probably the two most important versions of Dracula ever made. But Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is not very good at all. Well, they didn't didn't say it was one of the ten worst. That film has a lot of problems, but I, I, I still just like watching it. So Argento has been accused throughout his career of being a misogynist. And I think that that's because he is famous for creating some of the most horrific, gory deaths against beautiful women. He actually gave a quote to a magazine which sort of has followed him around his whole career. And this is what he said. I like women, especially beautiful ones. If they have a good face and figure, I would much prefer to watch them being murdered than an ugly girl or man. So this is what a lot of feminists and people took issue with. He subsequently said, I've very often been accused of misogyny, of murdering women in my films, obviously not in real life. I really like that he clarified that. This is a very wrong interpretation of the fil- of my films. In fact, I am very egalitarian in that I kill as many men as women. It must be that since I am more interested in women, I have killed them in more spectacular ways. I completely reject the accusation that I am a misogynist. So what do we think of this? I mean, do you think of Argento as a misogynist? Do you think Suspiria is, um, I suppose, ethically unsound in that sense? Short answer, no. Right. Would you care to elaborate? This is a rare horror movie that is told from a female perspective almost all female perspective and uh, you know the thing didn't have a female character in it that the first film that we did on the podcast it's kind of like the reverse of that but it does actually have male characters in it the majority of the violence therefore in this film occurs perpetrated against women just because they are the majority of characters but that's not solely the case Pavlo is killed at the end of the movie and the pianist Daniel is has his throat ripped out by his dog so it's not solely perpetrated against women. I guess, yeah, the, the really elaborate murder sequences in this, the, the beautiful ones, the, the, the use of colour and light and everything, that is that first sequence especially, the opening of the movie, that opening murder sequence, yeah. and the one later on with the barbed wire and all of that. But I don't think it means that he's misogynist at all. I think also he has all of the positions of power at the Academy are held by women. I don't think there's... I mean, if he'd done a, every female role was a, an evil woman or was someone getting, uh, um, you know, slaughtered in a re- really horrible way and there was no good, then I guess you could make that accusation. But I don't think you can make that accusation against Suspiria looking at all of the evidence. What do you think, Cam? I don't think horror films should have ethics. 
they are eth- ethically unsound of what, what's going on on, on film. I, I think the fact that he does create his lead characters are women consistently throughout it is an empowering element to it. But the fact that he kills them is just part and parcel of the genre. Like I don't. When we looked at the thing, they said, "Oh, well, we asked this same question: Is it misogynist because there's no women in this movie?" And then you suddenly put women into those roles, and you say, "Is it misogynist because now there's violence being perpetrated against them?" How dare you have a horror film where violence is perpetrated against the main characters of the film? <laughs> Suspiria is very female centric, mm. and the majority of fans of the film, I would speculate, are female. Uh, Film scholar Kate Hagen wrote of the film, it is a sumptuous visual delight that celebrates all things female, even those that might have serious underpinnings. The elegant motions of the ballerinas, the soft billowing of white curtains, bedding and nightgowns, every interior painted with vibrant pastel floral colours. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. And also all of the women have agency, they have power, whereas all of the men are disadvantaged. Daniel is blind, Mark is poor. Pablo is ugly. And in terms of it, yeah, Pablo is ugly. And, you know, Mark is, you know, potentially a love interest, but then there's a question mark about whether or not he's gay. So it's only the women that have all the cards and all the power. Even the technique of storytelling of Suspiria to me is feminine because, you know, it has like an emotive texture. It's multi-tracked rather than like a masculine focus and lucidity, which is what most narrative films alike. So I think even in the way it's made. And also the narrative, the key plot point is an iris. That's the reason that all of it, where all of this stuff in this building physically is hidden is behind an iris. Yeah. So there's that symbolism. It's interesting that this was an issue in 1977 and it's still an issue today. I mean, as early as last week, a film reviewer from Mary Claire, her name's Mahara Bonner. She's gotten a lot of flack because she's written a really unfavorable review of Dunkirk Mm. saying that there's no female driven or or female empowered roles in it. She wrote, Dunkirk felt like an excuse for men to celebrate maleness, which apparently they don't get to do enough. So there's like a really snarky kind of aggressive review and of course people are responding with well it's a historical film and in the 40s there weren't any female soldiers um you know on the front we needed a nurse sideline in dunkirk but when they do that they do something like i think it's kate beckinsale in pearl harbor who is just a horrible character yeah she's sitting like on the rocks of the shore writing letters to her far more misogynist than anything that happens in uh, Suspiria. And celebrating men and men's achievements shouldn't be a spur against women or feminism. Yeah. That's, the, that's the thing that's coming out sort of recently is the fact, you know, like men's achievements are often eschewed in the face of like a, 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 a female achievement, which is the opposite of what you probably want to try and achieve when it comes to equality. Segregating yeah. people further doesn't push the agenda in a positive direction. It just creates the same dynamic that caused the problem in the first place. That's right. And this Bonner woman is taking feminism a step back with this kind of incendiary, snarky, idiotic review that she's written. She's actually doing a disservice to herself and her cause. She's turning feminism into a joke. She's making it hate-filled, and I just think it's really irresponsible, and she should be ashamed of herself. So Goblin had scored Deep Red for Argento already and they did Phenomena and Sleepless later on. They also did Dawn of the Dead when it was released in uh, Italy, which had been produced by Argento. They also scored the Italian release of the 1978 Australian horror film Patrick. 
and the main title of Suspiria was used in the trailer for the 2011 film Jane Eyre. And they're still touring the album. So they've toured it in 2011, uh, sorry, since 2011 in Australia, New Zealand and Belgium. Apparently, as a band, they've had so many people come in and out that they lack a little bit of credibility amongst their their fan base. Yeah. And, I mean, to get back to it, I mean, like, the score in many aspects completely dictates how you experience Suspiria. Mm. If you take that score out, nowhere near as strong of a film. Has those kind of... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what other word to use, but those tinkling kind of piano keys of something like The Exorcist as well. Mm. Yeah. Except, so. like, amped up to yeah, 11T. I, I think the mix... Like the sound mix in this film needs to be brought to the fore as well. It's not just the score, it's how loud they've mixed the score into the entirety of the mix. Like the score overpowers dialogue sometimes and you don't care because you, you get the gist of what's going on and it's more about the atmosphere and feeling of it. But I think this is one of the best scores of a film of all time in terms of its effectiveness. Terror at the opera. Close your eyes. You'll tear them apart. You'll just have to watch everything. She is the captive audience. On the unreversed plane. Evil is the true star. And no matter how hard you try, you won't be able to close your eyes. Did you end up watching opera? Yes. What are you laughing at me for? I've just looked at your notes and your first word is terrible. (laughs) Did you watch it, Cam? You know what? I tried two nights in a row to watch it and I fell asleep in the same part like two (laughs) times in a row. I have seen it before, so I can talk about it. So, yeah, we don't usually discuss two movies. Uh, We've only done it in the special episode where we did Baby Jane and the TV series Feud. Cameron was absent for that episode. Cameron was getting a cyst removed from his ass, if oh, I recall I correctly. <laughs> but you're doing well now, aren't you, Cam? Pardon? You're doing well now. Yeah, I've got my cushion to sit on. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to kind of incorporate opera a little bit into this as well. Which I thought was an interesting choice, considering it's not part of the, like, mother of TV. No, it's not. It's just a... It's just a I mean, we haven't... I, don't, I mean, we probably won't go back to Argento anytime soon. Well, so. there's nothing to go back to, really. Well, there would have been opera, but apparently you would have been disappointed in that episode. Or, or Deep Red. Well, you know what? I saw opera when I was maybe 19 or 20, and I loved it at that time, and I watched it last night. I wrote up a little plot synopsis for our audience. Luke is currently going to try to make it sound like a really bad movie. I don't need to try. You do need to try. Okay, so... Let's see if there's any embellishment in this plot synopsis Let's then. see. I doubt it because you know how objective I am. Betty is an understudy who becomes a star after the star of the production is mowed down by a car. The night of her stunning debut, she witnesses the murder of her boyfriend, the killer taping needles under her eyes to keep them open so she must watch. Betty decides not to go to the police and instead calls the director of the show and within minutes is getting into a discussion about her sex life, having recovered completely from the trauma. She doesn't go to the police for some idiotic reason about a dream from her childhood that makes no sense and who cares. Her assertion that all of this is happening to her because of the Macbeth curse makes her seem pretty dim. The inspector at Italy's finest stands in a crowded room going over the particulars of the murder with the entire company as if he's Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote. Later, Betty peers through the peephole of her door and watches some slag saying goodnight to her boyfriend, interrogates her, asking her who that man was, what he was looking for, and the slag is like, fuck off, leaving the audience to wonder if Betty is able to exercise any judgment. 
The wardrobe girl is up next. She hits the killer with the iron once, unmasks him, and is just about to announce his name when his hands leap up to her throat and she's dead. After being forced to witness two murders, Betty confides in the inspector, finally acting like something approximating a regular human being. Being a witness to both murders and clearly an integral part of the killer's methodology, the inspector naturally asks her to wait upstairs alone in a locked room far away from him. Ensconced in her apartment, Betty lets in a man who identifies himself as a cop, lets him in without any compunction, doesn't bother checking. She puts on a self-help tape and sits back and sort of relaxes. Her agent visits and realizes that the man in her apartment might not actually be a cop. Finally catching up to the audience, who at this point are wondering if Betty has a learning disability. The agent gets a bullet in the eye, leaving Betty at sixes and sevens. Throughout all of this, Argento keeps inserting shots of what looks like a throbbing brain, as if to indicate the one anatomical area not used in the making of this film. Betty escapes to the theatre and runs into Marcus. She tells him she's going to sleep in her dressing room because she's a bit buggered, leaving him to recite a monologue to himself on stage. We finally see Betty's dream about the death of her mother at the hands of a master assailant. The evening's opera gets underway and ends with a bunch of crows attacking the audience, at which point my mother, who I was watching the film with, was finally compelled to utter the words that have been hanging in the air since the film began, well, this is just silly. The killer turns out to be Angela Lansbury, who explains with some painful exposition that he'd been sexually abused by her mother. Betty either lives or dies after this and throws herself into a field of poppies. I wouldn't want to spoil it. She does spot a lizard, but who cares? It's over. And thank Jesus Christ for that. So you do realise that part where the crows attack the audience during the performance was intentional to find out who the killer was because he has assaulted the crows earlier. So the crows had suddenly become murderous? No, the crows could identify the person who attacked them. And so that's how they found out that he was the killer. That's yeah, but why, why would... him and said, you, that was so smart to do. Because it was. It was a very smart thing to Crows do. Crows are very placid. They would never attack a head, like a, a whole audience full of people. They didn't. They attacked the one person. They didn't. Well, they attacked they, everyone. Were you watching the, the same person. film? Um, no, look, I thought it was terrible. It was, you know, Suspiria without... Everything that's good about Suspiria. The narrative was absolutely awful. The script was terrible. It was unconvincing. It was schlocky, adolescent, horrible. So Suspiria is a uh, not realistic movie. And gets away with it. And opera is not along those same lines. Opera is attempting realism. Opera is a crime movie. It is more directly linked to the idea of giallo novels, I guess. It's, It's closer to Deep Red and Tenebrae that Argento had made before. Yeah, and? So it's not trying to do the same thing as Suspiria. It's just trying to tell this crime story. That's my problem with it, is that it's not trying to do the same thing as Suspiria, so it can't get away with the deficiencies of Suspiria. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's obviously a, a lesser film than Suspiria, but there's a lot of... I mean, there was a lot of stuff I really liked in opera, and I still like in opera. I like the deaths. I think there's good, uh, deaths. there's good deaths. I agree. I think the lead character is miscast. I think I don't care about what happens to people, but like in the way, there's a lot of technical proficiency in that film, I mean, and, and I know, and I know that that's sort of part and parcel of Argento when we speak about him anyway. But it's, I think he honed his work yeah. a lot by that point. His yeah. camera work is really steady cams being used, like uh, relative is a relatively new, you know, technological thing sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think that's really good. I, I'd forgotten when the British stage hand that gets stabbed in front of her in the first instance when she's got the pins under her eyes. That was so much more brutal than I remembered it. Like with him defending himself, getting the hands, getting stabbed consistently. Like I thought that was quite 
realistic in a way um, that I you don't associate with Argento. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's a three-star film. Like, it's not... A- yeah, I really like the bullet through the keyhole scene. And it's so funny that it's his girlfriend or wife at the time. Yeah, his ex-wife. Yeah, they yeah, they'd, uh, ended that relationship. So she said no, and she came back and said yes when she heard of how shocking and, I guess, over the top that scene was going to be. Opera has a couple of similarities to Suspirio. It deals with, they both deal with a young woman in the arts, obviously one in a ballet, one in an opera. In opera, the opera that they're performing is Verdi's Macbeth, which is based on the... A uh, story written by Shakespeare, which deals with... Wait, wait, when Beth was written by Shakespeare? <laughs> which deals with witches, which is obviously the, I guess, the main theme of Suspiria. And uh, just interestingly, that play was written on, uh, based on the writings of King James in 1957 in something called Demonology, which detailed the attempts of three witches to use witchcraft in 1950 to sink the boat of King James and his queen on their return from Denmark. So that's a true story. Uh, I think it was called the Berwick, North Berwick Witch Trials or something. Mm. I think also the opening scene is a point of view scene and Argento places his camera and himself in a, a female body for this scene as well. So that's really interesting. You know, we were just talking about misogyny, but that scene's really good. The point of view scene that you're talking about, there are a couple of bits where it doesn't make sense. Like she's walking very fast backwards, apparently. <laughs> she's very talented. <laughs> yeah. The difference, I think, between opera and Suspiria, um, other than just like quality, is opera has a lot staged around opera. There's like two scenes of ballet in a ballet school in Suspiria. Like it means fucking nothing. And those ballet dancers are terrible. You can clearly see that it doesn't have... I mean, you compare it to something like Black Swan. Uh, Which is interesting because Natalie Portman was linked to the Suspiria remake for a long time. So Opera was released in 1987, about a decade after Suspiria. It had 1.36 million ticket sales. Yeah, it was a very popular film. So they used to, I guess, count ticket sales instead of box office Mm. back then in Europe. So that was twice as many as Suspiria. Which is strange because it obviously had an audience and it still does and it still hasn't had that I know of a decent home video release. No. Betty's uh, boyfriend, Stefano, the sage hand. Most people would know him as the killer in the Sigourney Weaver movie Copycat. Yeah. Weird that he pops up. That was his first film role, opera. Mm. I hate his role in Copycat. There's like some kind of incestuous thing going on with giallo filmmakers, so... Inspector Suave in opera is played by Michel Suave, and he would go on to become a director himself. Argento co-wrote The Church, which was Suave's first feature film. He would go on to make Delamorte Delamore, starring Rupert Everett, which is otherwise known as Cemetery Man. And he had started as uh, Argento's second AD on Tenebrae. And then just moving beyond those two working together, Argento was a friend of George Romero, uh, who made Dawn of the Dead, which Dario produced. And when it was brought to Europe, Argento recut the film and released it as Zombie. And Lucio Fulci would go on to make an unofficial sequel to this film, which was known as Zombie 2 in Europe, and either Zombie or Zombie Flesh Eaters everywhere else. Michelle Suave had acted in Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead in 1980, and Argento had another working relationship with Lamberto Bava, who directed the first two Demons movies in the 1980s, and he was the son of the grandfather of Italian horror, Mario Bava, who directed Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, Blood and Black Lace, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, and 1971's Bay of Blood, which is known elsewhere, I think, as Twitch of the Death Nerve. And that was uh, one of the most influential movies on American slasher movies. So there's, like, 
three degrees of separation there between probably the five biggest giallo filmmakers. When you talk about um, the misogyny thing, I know I'm not trying to get back to that, but like, do you think it is weird that Argento has shot his own daughter being killed a few times on film and her being raped on film? Yeah. Do you find that strange? I find that I find the rape strange. And there's a quote from Arzia talking about the first time she had to um, get naked in front of her father, yeah. Cameron, do a sex scene and how awkward that was. She also said that sometimes she feels more like a muse than a daughter. Mm. She, gave, she gave a really candid interview on an Argento documentary that's available on YouTube, so we'll link it to the show notes. If you were just to see a photo of Dario Argento, what would you think? Pretty ugly. Yeah. But... Um, Asia is beautiful, like mm. stunningly beautiful. Mm. And even um, his wife is, I guess, a handsome woman. A handsome woman. Yeah. <laughs> She's in the Glenn Close kind of character. She is, yeah. Yeah. So Suspiria was released in Italy on the 1st of February 1977. And it's uh, pretty difficult to come up with box office figures. So what I have kind of got from my research was that it grossed 1.43 billion Italian lira, which is equivalent to about 12.11 billion lira today. So that's 7.4 million US dollars. Um, in the United States, it grossed another 1.8 million. So that's equivalent to 7.3 million today. And as I said before, a lot of European countries tracked admissions rather than dollars. So in France, it had about 10% of the admissions it had in Italy, so 60,000. And in Spain, it had about half of the admissions it had in Italy, so slightly over 385,000. So based on all of this, uh, if every ticket's worth the same price, then it would have probably grossed about the equivalent of about 19 million US dollars today. So that doesn't seem too bad for a non-English language horror movie in the 70s. Janet Maslin reviewed the film upon release for the New York Times, saying that although the plot is both ridiculous and as transparent as a plane of glass, Mr. Argento's methods make potentially stomach-churning material more interesting than it ought to be. Right from the start, it's clear that the Italian-made English-language Suspiria is a specialty item. The opening credits show the title of the movie carved out of pulsating glands. Writer-director Dario Argento has an unusually horrific slant on life, to say the very least, and his film's most powerful moments have a way of making one think about open-heart surgery. Gary Arnold reviewed the film upon its release for The Washington Post, and he was not a fan. Said, eager to menace the audience from every sensory direction, Argento doesn't so much create and sustain an illusion of terror as invite you to marvel at his garish ingenuity and at the spectacle of a filmmaker who can't resist over-stylizing and upstaging his material. So obviously hindsight's been quite kind to Suspiria. It's 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and 94% on Critics Roundup. Wow. That's, that's, that's quite high. All right. Well, it's time for our quiz. Everyone feeling ready, sharpened up? I feel sexual because I'm laying like this. Cameron, we'll start with you. All right. Question one. Who produced Suspiria and how did he know Dario Argento? Uh, you can't look it up. <laughs> I know that Claudio Argento is the producer and executive producer is Salvatore Argento. I can't remember which one's the father, but one of them's the father. Yeah, okay. So, um, Claudio is the older brother. Yep. Yeah. But look, I'm going to give that to you, yeah. 
Damien, how many movies did Goblin do with Dario Argento? Ooh, that's a good question. Four? Five. Oh, my God. It's very close, though. I'm giving you half a half. What a was the other one? Nice. Oh, do you have the name? Yeah, go for it. I have Deep Red, Phenomena, Sleepless, and Suspiria. He, they also did um, Tenebrae. 1982. Cameron, what successful American psychological thriller did cinematographer Luciano Tavoli work on in 1992 about a roommate from hell? Single white female? Oh, he's got it. <laughs> Damien, what other classic horror film did Rudolf Schundler, who played Professor Milius in Suspiria, appear in? He's the professor that tells her about the witches. Huge horror film from the 70s. Maybe the biggest. The Exorcist. Yes! That's what I was going to say, Cameron. (laughs) Don't look at me like that, like I got a hint. You got spoon-fed, mate. (laughs) Cameron, during the maggot infestation scene, crew was stationed at the top of the set dropping what into the actresses? Very good. It was maggots. Oh my God. Cinema's not real, Damien. We're having conversations. (laughs) Okay, Damien, finish this line of dialogue, which is said by Miss Tanner in the film. I had no idea you were so strong-willed. I can see that once you make up your mind about something, nothing will change it for you. That almost sounds like it's finished. <laughs> you have my... Oh, he's so close. Oh, I can't think of the fucking word. You have my... Compliments. Compliments, <clears throat> okay. I was close. Oh, look, I'm sorry, Cameron won that, but look, yeah. we'll just do two bonus questions for fun. Yeah. Who from the original cast has been confirmed to have a cameo role in the Suspiria remake? Jessica Harper. Very good. And who does Tilda Swinton play in the Suspiria remake? Jessica Harper. <laughs> I'm guessing Madame Blanc. Yes, she does. Madame Blanc. Who's the Who's <laughs> the lead in the remake? It's not Chloe Grace Moretz. I think it's uh, Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson. Oh yeah. Argento has spoken out against the remake. He's written. He he said, "I do think it would be better if it wasn't remade. The film has a specific mood. Either you do it exactly the same way, in which case it's not a remake; it's a copy, which is pointless." Or you change things and make another movie. In that case, why call it Suspiria? It'll be interesting to see if he has anything to say when the film comes out. I think um, any filmmaker's probably going to react that way if if their masterpiece is being remade. Generally, I think all of us probably disagree with the idea of a lot of horror movies being remade. Unless they're good and then we love them. Unless they're good, but you don't know. So there's always, I think, going to be this negative reaction because the majority of them aren't particularly good. Yeah. Rating out of five, Suspiria, Cameron, shoot. Uh, four and a half, still one of my favourite films. Really? I thought you would have gone five. I thought you gave it five. Uh, I think it's a four and a half star film, but I enjoy it on a five star level. Oh, Very interesting. Good. Five. Okay. Just because just of how influential it is and, you know, sometimes story doesn't matter. Yeah, I went four and a half as well. I think it's absolutely brilliant experiment kind of film. There are a couple of tiny little things I would change to make it reach into a five-star territory, but definitely solid four and a half. And uh, opera? Two. I gave opera four and a half. Cameron? Uh, Opera would be three. All right, so that's all we have this month for Celluloid Junkies. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you especially to Alexandra Hella Nicholas for her fantastic interview that she gave us. In September, we're going to be looking at George Miller's brutal action thriller Mad Max Fury Road. So by all means, go home, give it a watch, and come back and see us. Have a nice life until then. Bye. Yes, indeed, in me. Proceed.
with what you're leading me to It's such an ancient pitch But one I wouldn't switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you Such an ancient pitch But one that I'd never switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you 